recognise for the people who listen to this as a podcast in podcast form, like audio form only, mm-hmm. um, which is quite a lot of people actually. Uh, I've not been looking at the stats, but it's far more uh, than you'd expect. Right, we're live. Good. Ah, oh, okay. Hello, everyone. We have um, Gary Keener is here, and I'm here. Hello. Um, it's we're gonna. It's it's it's. A, it's an interesting real matter because of what's happened today. Clearly, it's in fact. Let's get Gary up properly, so you can say hello properly. Gary's here. I, it's it's an interesting one in terms hello. of pitching tone because today's been just an absolutely heartbreaking day for both of us. We are really passionate about rail travel and passionate about safety. Being well, safety is is just number one. Like a lot of people say it, and perhaps a, a bit of lip service. But the reality, is I think, for most people on the railway, we really do understand that when you're moving. Yeah people around in trains safety is the number one thing so it's pretty pretty upsetting for everyone involved not least the people who are actually involved in in the instant emergency services and the, and the the staff and passengers involved and their families and friends so thoughts go out to them really uh and we're not we'll we'll talk about this in a, we'll talk about it very briefly after we've sort of introduced but that's so it's a bit of a somber one but i think it's important that we continue to focus on the the long term and what the railways, uh, the direction the railways are going and um, climate change and decarbonisation, which is why we've got Gary joining us to talk about electrification. Um, I'm going to make sure that everything's running smoothly, uh, which it appears to be. There's chat. There are people here. Um, yeah, it's important. People are pointing out in the chat that, there's, that, that it doesn't undermine the tragedy of today, but rail remains the safest way to move around on land. By by a long by a long shot, and um, occasionally you'll see people screaming um, about safety in railways uh, and trying to make a bigger, basically trying to hijack that, trying to hijack the importance of us learning from these sorts of incidents yeah. um, and make a bigger uh, and make something different of it. There's three things that are really important. One is that we look after the people who are involved. And that, yeah. That's that's the focus right now, which is why other things can wait. Um, the second thing is to learn to learn what happened and why it happened and, and to learn from that and to to use that to improve safety on rail because that's what we've always done um, and the third thing is not to speculate about what the causes are until the people who are actually qualified to determine that have, have, have done their investigation and I, I really can't stress that last point enough um, yeah. speculation isn't just unhelpful it's actively harmful so um, yeah so not yep, a good day. Yeah, not not a good day. Um, but we're gonna have we're gonna have real matter. We're ple- and pleased that we've got lots of people joining us. Um, we've got sixty of you joining us, which is which is good. Um, and so I think we'll just get started. To be honest, we shall. Uh, yeah, run run the intro credits. I, I think essentially. Um, welcome to this week's real matter. City 225 fades out. I'll bring Gary back. In fact, let's bring the title card back so we know what's going on, so people know what's actually happening. Here we are. We're, we're, up, we're small in the corner. Um, yeah, we're going to talk. So the theme for tonight's Rail Matter is making electrification stick. That's, that's the theme. That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, I mean, Gary's here. Gary's quite generally pretty candid. Uh, there are a few areas that you have to be careful about because of things are actually yep. happening. 
but um, we'll just there's a, a huge load I'll, I'll, of I'll jump in and give the standard caveat which is that anything I say on this will be my views and my views alone not the views of my employer um, I'm speaking for me and nobody else tonight so it's, it's yeah I, I never seem to give that caveat at the start of my videos I, really should, <laughs> I? I think you should <laughs> yeah, I never do. Arcadis generally don't get too angry at me, but that's because I never mention mention them. So um, there we are. Um, yeah, okay. So the first slide is is, I mean, we can't ignore it. Today has been a real tragedy for. It's just been a tragic day. Uh, it's not a day for speculation. So we're as as Gary's said, we're not. There's not. Don't ask any questions about it in the chat because we're just not going to pay attention to them. It's the time now not to be kind of. Um, speculating it's the time to just let the RAI, well, let the emergency services finish what they're doing and then let the um, investigators come in and do what they need to do. So we're not going to be talking about that. Um, the, yeah, I could talk about Earthworks, but actually I'm not going to because I don't, having looked at some of the aerial images, it's not even clear, you know, the public information isn't even, com it's not confirmed that there, there was a landslide that caused it. So um, I'm not going to talk about that anymore. So uh, just thoughts with everyone involved, really. So let's get to the subject at hand, which is wires and those wires that just kind of float around on top of the railway and make things go. Uh, it would be nice if electrification was, was like, I'll, I'll ask, there's probably a blessing in disguise, or, or rather like lots of problems when this was wired, right? Because you, okay, overhead clearance isn't an issue, right? But there's not much space to put stuff. Uh, like you need to find no, space it's, to it's put not stuff. A, it's, it's interesting you picked that phone. I'm assuming this is somewhere on northwest electrification. Yeah, this is the approaches to Lime Street, actually. Oh, okay, right. Oh, part yes, of course they did the so, remodeling. So right some there. of it, yeah. is, it was originally electrified, but they've so actually almost re-electrified the whole lot, actually. This is the sort of environment that does keep uh, the people who do my job awake at night uh, because it's, you know, you're trying to superimpose electrification on an old, uh, one of the earliest railways in the UK, um, some all sorts of interesting geological and man-made structures there. But, um, you know, that's why we, that's why we do what we do. Um, you know, there's a, there's a solution to most of these problems, but it's, uh, as always, having that understanding of what's there already is is the key to that. But yeah, that's, uh, I'm, gl I'm glad that wasn't my job. <laughs> yeah, it's quite. I I love this picture because it it just combines all sorts of things that are tricky and, and yeah. all sorts of mischief. Nice P way yeah. though. Um, let's go back side by side. So for for people in the, who are, who are watching this, not everyone necessarily knows who you are, Gary. Um, so I don't know if you want to just do a quick. A quick introduction. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a I'm an electrification engineer. I've I've worked in electrification my whole career. I I, I joined British Rail as a graduate, and I've worked uh, in electrification in some form or other ever since. Um, um, at the moment, I work for Atkins, uh, and as part of that, I get involved in lots of things, um, from everything from small schemes, small bits of work, very large bits of work, most recently Great Western, um, uh, but also get involved in things like developing different ways of working, digital tools, uh, digital techniques for measurement. I seem to have, without really planning on doing it over the last couple of years, I seem to have fallen into a sort of uh, measurement and monitoring kind of um, uh, series of contracts that we've won to do with measuring and monitoring OLE and trying to solve particularly difficult overhead line problems that the, the standard equipment won't necessarily solve. Mm. So, uh, so yeah, that's what I do. And I work with a great group of people. Uh, it's not just me. I know I'm, 
I tend to be uh, the most uh, one of the more visible people within my my bit of the industry. But um, that's just because I'm a loudmouth. That's not uh, doesn't mean I'm certainly not by no means the best engineer in our in our trade. I work with several people who could uh, show me a thing or two. Um, and yeah, and that's that's what I do. I design electrification, advise people on electrification. Um, so that's that's my job. Um, yeah, and so these, I mean, Gary, you've watched Rail Narrows, you know what the format is. I've seen you ping up and ask questions, so you know the deal. Um, so already I've got a question that I think is quite an interesting one to start with because it's probably an easy one for you to answer. Um, Tom Campion asks, uh, what are the electrification demands of something like High Speed 2, so a new line, compared to something like the Great Western Electrification uh, Program? Um, that's a very good question. Thank you, Tom. Um, good question. Um I can't quantify it because, um, as I constantly remind people, my any electrical knowledge that I appear to have is uh, is is not as strong as my uh, mechanical knowledge. Um, what I will say is, you're going oh, give just or take. A, I think I think the context of the question is more like how complex is electrification. Oh, I on, see. Uh, yeah, I, th I it's, think it's that's a strange it. one because it actually gets easier. Um, yeah. A lot of my sometimes my colleagues get their heads turned by things like high speed two and say i'm going to go work on high speed two and i say I bet it's really boring. why would you want yeah. <laughs> why would you want to do that it's just it's from a from a system's point of view once you've once you've defined the system once you've defined the overhead line system that you want to use and made sure that that can perform at the speeds um, and the electrical currents that you want to it actually just becomes rolling out mile after mile after mile of it um, there's none of this much more you know that, that picture that you, you put up at the start is perfect you're not going to get complex situations like that on high speed two there's one exception to that and that is at the tie-ins with the classic network yeah. so if you want to do something on interesting on hs2 you actually want to be on the fringes rather than on the core routes which um, hs2 because... has cleverly put a lot of work onto network rail to do i was on one of those yeah. interfaces at Hansacre, and i'm guessing and it was a that's nightmare. probably because they know that network rail are probably the yeah. best place people to do that for that exact reason yeah um, and yeah, and I've done some toy. I did some work on High Speed One a long time ago. Um, I was involved in one of the contracts that cleared all the existing railway out of the way at Dagenham and Ripple Lane to make way ah, for, for High yeah. Speed One. And um, and that was really complicated and trying to keep Ford, you know, Dagenham Ford. We're using all the yeah. sidings, and they were like, "We want 24/7. You know, do not, do not disconnect our sidings for even 10 minutes." And that's really interesting. But once all that enabling works is done, the actual systems build i mean it's different if you're on the electrical side i think it's more interesting you know feeding the power getting the power to the railway i think that's quite interesting and challenging mm. but the actual overhead line itself is is well i mean hs2 have already licensed the the french system um, so yeah, they've quite yeah. wisely just said we're going to use that because we know it works yeah it's so. been tested in anger at the fastest speed that yeah. steel on steel has gone um I was interested in your other answer, I suppose, but I suppose it, it's kind of a fairly simple power equation, right? In that if you've got trains that have a, a pretty high hotel draw and are going really fast, they're drawing a lot of energy. So you need to, yeah, uh, yeah. I suppose that's from an actual. It's going to increase the size. It's going to. I guess it would increase the size of your bulk supply points. Um, also, getting you know the, the challenge with with HV supplies is always um, you've got the railway here running, say there, and then your nearest you know, available 400 kV or whatever, whatever uh, level you want is over here. And how do you get you know, the power to where it's needed by mm. the railway? Um, 
and you know you sometimes you even see railways steered towards where the power is or you know things like that so mm. that's that's the biggest challenge i think once you've got the power to the line side it becomes fairly straightforward mm. but yeah the electrical the electrical architecture i think will be quite interesting especially things like um the fault protection and you know when you detect a fault how long do you switch it out for how do you reclose how do you know where the fault is how do you isolate the fault but keep the rest of the railway running mm. You know, these yeah, are given that it's a very intensive service running, like it's it's not like um it's not like a lot of the you know, it's, it's not like Crossrail at three hundred kph. Yeah, exactly, yeah, it? yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah. it's a metro system that's running at three sixty uh, when it's tr playing catch up. Um, yeah. So yeah, good question. Thanks, thanks, Tom. That was great. Uh, there are quite a few other queries. All oh, right. So. Okay, I'm going to answer this one because it avoids Gary having to give a long-winded answer. The game masters asked, "What is the current cost per mile?" Uh, of electrifying a railway line in the UK, uh, 1.6 million, if uh, if it's an easy one, and th thinking that it's about a million a, a single track kilometer, uh, and then maybe 1.5 million a single track kilometer if it gets a bit more fiddly, or maybe two million think, per single track kilometer if it gets is, really fiddly. The, the answer is, and I appreciate that's a kind of that will be a, that will be a point value within a range. The, yeah, the answer yeah. is it's complicated. Um, first of all, the first thing you've got to define is what do you mean by the cost of electrification. So if you think about the things that typically have to happen on, if we take a railway that's not electrified now and then electrify it, things that typically have to happen is route clearance. Bridges have to be cleared. Um, a number of things have to happen to some over bridges. Signaling immunization. You may not have a signaling system that's currently immune to AC interference, in which case you've got to do something about that before you electrify. Um, you may then bring in other elements. So um, the, the, the you know infra other infrastructure may need to be upgraded to be compatible with electrification. So do you include that in the electrification costs? But, so let's take a signalling scheme. If you were a, if you're going to re-signal this railway in 2025, and you pull it forward in order to get it ready for electrification, should that cost be in mm. electrification or not? So you've got to be really careful, and, and we've we've in the past we've got ourselves in trouble because we've not compared apples with apples. Yeah. Um, and the other thing is that 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 some of those costs probably do need to be included in electrification. So route clearance is a good example of that should be in the cost of electrification because that's why you're doing it. But each route's different. Yeah. You know, route route clearing uh, a railway that runs through East Anglia, for instance, with very few bridges and lots of level crossings. It's probably going to be cheaper than route clearing somewhere in the Pennines. Um, unless you unless you kick safety cases into needing loads of new overbridges, um, but that's uh, that's another discussion, I suppose. But then you destroy the case for electrification by by bundling it, it in. Yeah, 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 indeed. And, and you know, and, they, and, the, and the business case it's traditionally been very hard to make the business case for electrification um, because it's been right on a knife edge. The the game changer is decarbonisation. Um, and that 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 gives us a, a you know a, an overwhelming imperative to decarbonise and, and and electrification is is the only viable answer for many routes. Which is frustrating because the business case it, it, that for me that's evidence that that traditional business case modelling is broken because an electric railway is a cheaper railway. It's a cheaper railway. Your trains are lighter. The kits less complicated. Uh, the whole thing is more reliable. Uh, you draw passengers in with an electric railway, so it, it, uh, yeah. But Gary has to be careful about this because we have we have to be we have to we can't slag off the current business case system too much because you're currently in it and harnessing it as best as you can to make that case with using decarbonisation. Anyway, right, let's press on. 
because we're already uh, 60 minutes in and we haven't moved on, which is what RailNet is all about. So, Gary, we're going to just briefly... So, you sent me a, a few slides. We're very briefly going to um, uh, not do those because we're going to skip to February 1981. <laughs> do you remember February 1981? I do, yes. It was yeah, 10 was years... Just, start, just started secondary school. Really? It was 10 years yeah. before I was born. Uh, yeah, uh, let's not dwell on that. Um, but... <laughs> What happened in 1981 was that um, the Department of Transport and the British Railways Board jointly published um, their review of mainline electrification, a document which can be found on your Railways Archive site, uh, now up and running again, I'm happy to say. Um, and it's well worth a read. It's very interesting. Uh, and they include a map, and they include some not unreasonably optimistic uh, timings. Yeah, it was 1981, and they were looking forward to... The latest date they have is, is, I think, 2010 was the last date, which was electrification to Aberdeen. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Um, so I thought I'd just yeah zoom in on the table uh, and, and just ask you what you think of some of these numbers. Uh, and why is it that they're able to... Why is it in 1981 they're giving us these pretty... You know, these dates out to 2010, electrification up to the fringes of the network, if you like, or the fringes of the intercity mm. network by 2010. Why is that happening so early um, compared to now? Well, I think the short answer is is a, is a lack of a, and I think it's one of, I know it's one of your, uh, one of the things that you bang on about is the lack of a long-term plan. The railway has always struggled uh, through lack of long-term planning. Um, you know, British Rail, you know, British Rail worked on annual budgets, so um, the way that British Rail was funded meant that um, it, it was very hard to look at more than one year ahead, um, and it was able to do that by agreeing each and every scheme directly with with treasury and and that was the way that they proceeded um so when you look at when you look at uh the sort of waves of electrification we've never managed to get to a steady state rolling program of electrification ironically having an early lockdown project that i had in order to help keep my mental health uh, together was to start collating all the stats on what we electrified and when and what that data shows is that the only time, the closest we've ever got to rolling program was the 1930s yeah. uh, Southern Railway. Yeah. And unfortunately, um, the Adolf Hitler stuff. put a stop to that. Um, and that's the last time that we ever, that we had, mm. uh, even, even, you know, what people might see the heyday of the 1960s uh, with the West Coast. If you look at it, it's actually very lumpy. Um, you know, in 1960, we're doing very little. By 1965, we're doing an awful lot. And by 1970, we've stopped again. And then we have another big surge in the early 1970s to get up to Glasgow. And then and then things quieten down again. And then in the 1980s, we get the next surge, which is when East Coast uh, was, was authorised. Should have got that graph but, up, really, shouldn't I? It's a great graph. I need to, yeah, I need to get hold of the raw kilometre numbers off you so that I can do a permanent mm -hmm. rail engineering version of the yeah. graph. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because it is, it, it, it's that, that very, is so very spiky. Lumpy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and that, that and that's crucial when you, and you when you contrast with other countries who have just kind of steadily gone about, you know, electrifying X kilometres a year, and that X hasn't varied by more than plus or minus twenty percent in any given year. By doing that, you you build efficiency. That is that it's the only. I wouldn't say it's the most efficient way to electrify. It's the only yeah. efficient way to electrify is to is to keep doing it and doing it at a rate that you can control because then you. You build skills, um, you build 
capacity and capability um you know the 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 contractors can have some certainty and some and and see and therefore they have some trust and faith and therefore they'll invest their money in in training and in plants and all of these it's electrification is a production line that starts in the drawing office and ends when the first electric train runs and and you've got to like all production lines if you switch it off for five years and then try and switch it back on um guess what the machinery is rusty nothing works and and the final product will suffer because of it yeah and um so it's it's not all doom and gloom although i mean what's that down to penzance 2003 in the in the sort of very slow proposal back in 1981 that would have been nice anyway so we're going to skip forward to july 2020 and we're back into your slides again or or rather certainly th- these are this these are the official graphics that came from scotrail july 2020 and scotland having control of its own infrastructure uh, sort of railway infrastructure um essentially almost totally devolved not quite but almost totally devolved they have done the thing that we should be doing which is created a map uh i mean it's not a program yet but it is a map and there is a plan Mm. and actually so this map we we brought up um kind of uh, a couple of weeks ago but you have or someone has sent me whether it was gary or not i'm not going to indict him but there's this 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 additional this extra one this this map here which i think is more useful so this is the 2035 one you've got these yellow bits which are Um, yeah, because 2035 is a staging point. It's not the end yeah, state. Yeah, and yeah. I should add that the map that I've the map on the next slide. Um, that's not a secret. That's in the that's in, in the, the Scottish yeah, decarbonisation yeah, yeah. strategy. That's that's their final end state. They think. Yeah. And you know, as as with all plans, you know, it's a 30 year plan. Well, it's actually 30 2020. Yeah. So it's a, it's a it's a 25 year plan. Like all 25 year plans, it's going to change. It's going to adapt. It's going to evolve. Um, but you know, as a as a as a line in the sand, it's it's a really strong sends a really strong signal of intent. Yeah, uh, and it means and, industry you know, can kind of get an idea of what it thinks it's going to be doing over the next twenty five years, yes. which is just so critical. Um, uh, when I was talking about what I think the structure of the railways should be, I was talk I, I kind of made a point of slipping a shoehorning in a slide about um, transient and sort of uh, uh, contingent labour. And, and the impacts that that has on on the industry. It's not healthy for the people who are actually bound by those sorts of contracts, but it's also not good from an, an industry cost perspective and a, and, a, and a doing stuff perspective in terms of rates of completion. So having a plan means that you can actually hire people full time on a proper contract where they know what they're going to be doing. They can actually uh, think about their careers rather than just thinking about the next shift. Um, yeah, so this is quite good. So it's, I think it's important to compare these two and show that this, this 2035 image uh, and this is really what the UK, sh- what the rest of the UK should be doing is this in- is saying this is what we're going to do by this stage. Then this is what we're going to be having. Uh, this is I- the ideal end state, if you like. Um, yeah, so that's quite good. Um, yeah, I was very, I was, I'm glad that's happening. But we we have a glaring lack of that for the rest of the UK, really. Um, right. So we, we we do we do at the moment, but um, that's that's simply because um, uh, the 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 rest of the traction decarbonisation network strategy has not yet been published yeah. but it's you know it's, it's getting there it's uh, it's getting there well, it's exactly drafted, actually it is drafted right. and circulating i think they're that will hopefully see the the yeah. final version maybe later the, at the end of this year or maybe early next year I, i'm and not that, sure of the exact you know, and i'm looking forward to seeing a, you know an equally strong and bold plan for england and wales so. yeah 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 um absolutely yeah so uh just flick through to see if we've got any questions uh Oh, here's one that's sufficiently far in the in the distant past that you probably can discuss it. 
uh, which is that Romy Adekra asks whether the 1955 modernization plan and abrupt, and I'll, I'll add my own uh, addendum, chaotic uh, dieselization, did that put paid to electrification? Uh, wasn't the original plan to phase steam out much more slowly while electrifying mainlines? Mm, thoughts? Gary Keener. Um, I think, yeah, I think the modernization plan was a, a, a double-edged sword is an understatement. I think, I mean, clearly the, the, the modernization plan did trigger uh, some wide-scale electrification, specifically the West Coast um, and also Glasgow uh, and Birmingham suburban electrification. So in that respect, it was good. But of course, you know, Gareth, at that point, the regions in BR had all the power and each region had its own its own view on what traction strategy should be yeah. famously on on my patch on the western it was all brrr, diesel hydraulics you know we not having any of that weird electrification stuff we want diesel hydraulics and that didn't that didn't go well um and those 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 locomotives were all scrapped with a few exceptions within within 10 years um uh, but i think also i think crucially that what the what the, what the the way that the modernization plan was was rolled out by br was was pretty disastrous for the industry in terms of cost control um you know we we we, we picked a lot of the wrong technologies the whole marshalling yard thing for instance uh you know building marshalling yards for traffic that was already walking out the door um, declining, and, it, yeah. and it and it hugely damaged the, the railway's reputation with the uh, with the uh, government right. and the treasury right. for for decades afterwards and you know this is all a matter of public record and people who are much better at railway history than me have written extensively about this so yeah, it was, it was... I, i've got mixed feelings about the modernization plan yeah it was a shambolic disaster is my view of the modernization plan it was just a, a catastrophic missed opportunity it's sad I mean, that we never West... got nuclear trains either which is I well, like... you know, I, I'm all for the French approach to nuclear trains, uh, which is that all of their high-speed rail is all of their high-speed trains are nuclear-powered, yeah. um, and it should be the same for us. Anyway, right, okay, so uh, right, okay. The next thing we're going to talk about is, unless there are any particular questions on that, there are quite a few queries. Oh, actually, that's quite an interesting question. Right, Gary, I'm going to keep you up because we just had an interesting question that's quite a sideways one, but it's quite it is interesting, which is Michael Dono asks. How practical would converting the Tynanweir Metro to 25 kV be? Ooh, uh, that's an interesting question. Um, Give, particularly I, given what we're I going to talk about the, in the next I slide. I suppose the actually. first question, I'll, 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 I'll answer, I, I, and I'm terrible for doing this. People who know me will tear their, be there, turn their hair out at this point because I'm, I'm going to answer the question I prefer to answer, which is why would you do that? Um, the, the main <laughs> reason why you might, if you were building a Metro today, um, you might choose to electrify it at 25 kV. Um, the, the reason for doing there are two reasons to do that. One is that the substation costs are usually lower because you need fewer of them. So uh, substations are not cheap; they're expensive installations. So the fewer of those you can have, the better. And the other answer is of you know famously horrible DC stray current. So. Mm. Once you've built the Tynoir Metro, which you have, and it's oper quite happily operating at 1500 volt DC, the the substation cost issue goes away because it's you spend that money. Um, the straight current issue is obviously still there, but you know, Tynoir Metro, I'm sure, have got to a point where they 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 know how to manage those straight currents. And um, but in terms of conversion, um, I imagine it wouldn't be it. It's not going to be straightforward, but um, it would be doable. Um, the things I'd look at first, uh, um, there's a section from the center of, I'm not 
that familiar with Newcastle. In fact, I only went on the Metro for the first time last year. But uh, the tunnels, that's the first place yeah. you look. Have you got the clearances in the tunnels? If you haven't got the clearances in the tunnels, I'd stop right there. Yeah, it's, that's getting um, really, isn't it? If you've got the clearances in the tunnels, then the rest of it's doable. But, it, you know, it, it would have to be done in a very managed way. And, I, again, the question would be, why are you doing it? Yeah. What, um, what's the overwhelming reason to do it? And I, Yeah, particularly, I mean, okay, the next slides are relevant to this, which is kind of why I picked the question, which is that actually given the advances we've made in the UK in, get, in reducing the requirement for... Uh, you know, in, in reducing electrical clearance requirements, that would make an, taking the time we're metro and turning it into an AC mm. system, it would make that quite a bit easier. Talking of which, I'm going to go back to small faces again, because the next thing we're going to talk about is cost reduction opportunities. Yeah, sure. Um, which is which you told which we were going to yeah we were interested to chat about this. So let's put let's put the, the picture up. Um, and there's a load of different stuff here. So I'm going to keep this picture up and we can natter away. But actually, there's probably more to talk about than 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 there are in these snaps. Um, yeah, Gary, tell us about cost reduction. Yeah, so obviously, even before even before the decarbonisation agenda exploded, which it has really only over the last eighteen months or so, uh, in terms of rail, um, even before then, the industry was acutely aware of the need to reduce unit costs for electrification. We I won't rehash the story of control period five. Anybody who's got even a passing interest in in the railway industry will we'll know that uh, that that cp5 electrification didn't go well on some schemes other schemes quietly delivered but of course quietly delivering doesn't get the headlines so um the, the whole industry was re is really aware that we need to reduce those unit rates and you you mentioned 1.6 million and that's that's too expensive that, it needs to be lower than that and and over time it will get lower than that absolutely um and so the industry is led by network rail, uh, but with supported by, you know, by the by the supply chain is is already well on with looking at a number of measures that will uh, that, that, that electrification schemes in the in the decarbonisation plan will be able to take advantage of. And they're all these scheme, these 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 different uh, ideas and initiatives, they're all. They're all they're at various points within the trial process, if you like. Um, some of them are quite quite mature and quite advanced, and others are, are earlier in the pipeline. But all of them show promise, uh, which is really really exciting. Um, the one on the left is the is it was the cleanest image I could really find of um, a, a series of measures that that collectively are known as voltage control clearances. So, what are voltage control clearances? So, if you think about a wire, if you think about a, a uh, an overbridge that you need to electrify you've you've people like me have essentially got an air gap we've got an air gap between the roof of the train and the underside of the bridge and into that air gap we've got to cram not just the live parts of the system but uh, a, an insulating air gap upwards to the bridge and another insulating air gap downwards to the train because the train is earthed flashovers to the train are just as bad as flashovers to the bridge so we've got that air gap to play with and there's usually not enough of it you know that's the, the the goal the iron rule of electrifying victorian railways is there's never enough room through the bridges um so in 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 previous times we've had to take some painful decisions about either either reconstructing a bridge or lowering the track to increase that air gap uh, to give us enough uh, to give us enough electrical clearance such that a flashover doesn't occur um now the interesting thing about that air gap is it's not i don't want to i won't 
Gareth, I'm going on too long. You know, I tend to rabbit. Just, just shut. That's me up literally what real that is, Gary. You're uh, all right. I know, I know, I know. Um, the air gap <laughs> isn't there, and this is something a lot of people don't understand. And like, why? What's he talking about? The air gap isn't there for a 25 kV withstand. So if you think about an air gap, that air is an insulator, and broadly, that its its resistance to electricity is linear so it's linear with the size of the air gap so if the air gap doubles its insulation strength doubles roughly uh, so the air gap for 25 kV is significantly smaller than the air gaps that we actually demand uh, in our system and the reason for that is simple it's very timely actually I've spent most of today anxiously watching a lightning map because I've got team out <laughs> on site today measuring overhead line and obviously at the moment there's a lot of lightning storms popping up so I've been on lightning watch to uh, to alert them to anything that might be coming their way uh, and it's these air gaps are for lightning um, so what happens is overhead line is incredibly attractive to lightning in fact there was damage on on, on the east coast main line today I believe uh, due to a lightning strike um, it's a it's it, it's a very long thin exposed uh, earth sticking up into the air so it's very attractive to lightning um, so what happens is the lightning strikes the overhead line the overhead line the voltage in the overhead line immediately rises to hundreds of kilovolts mm. you know it obviously varies but you know 200 300 kv spike is is perfectly normal for lightning mm. um, and what that does is it breaks down the air gap suddenly that air gap that was an insulator becomes overwhelmed a flashover occurs, the air is ionized and turns to plasma, and plasma is a brilliant conductor of electricity. Um, yeah. And at that point, you might think, yeah, but then the lightning dissipates and, and it's fine. No, because it, you've just created an earth path for traction current. So the traction current piles into that yeah. plasma and goes, oh, I'll have some of that. I can go home now. I can go back to earth. I can go back to the substation. So traction current starts flowing. And the thing about an arc is it's self-sustaining. Once an arc is struck, it's self-sustaining because it heats the air, ionizes the air, and that air stays ionized. Yeah. So even once the lightning dissipates, you've still got a flashover. So that's why our air gaps are typically, you know, we're talking about 270 to 370 millimeters is a good air gap uh, to withstand that lightning. Um, so what voltage control clearances does is take lightning and and, it, and the other thing, that, of course, that can that can cause problems is, is intrusion, things intruding into the air gap, uh, things that can intrude pigeons, other birds, <laughs> trampolines, carrier bags, balloons. sheds, balloons, you name uh, uh, cassette tapes is the old classic. Kids love these to oh, drop yeah, over the, yeah. you know, uh, a range of objects can find their way into that space. So the two things you've got to somehow deal with if you want to reduce your air gaps are lightning withstand and intrusion from objects. So the lightning withstand is dealt with by this device you see on the left here, which is a very clever bit of electrical equipment called a surge diverter, uh, also known as a surge arrester. And what it does, it's, 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 we call them, the formal title for it is a non-linear resistor, which think of it like a tap, right? And, and under it, you connect it to the overhead line and you connect you connect one side to the overhead line the other side to earth but it's a tap and, and ordinarily it's closed so the valve is closed so no current can flow from live to earth so in normal operation it just sits there all right but what happens is it's a set inside it's a semiconductor and as soon as the voltage rises to a, whatever threshold you want to set it at it suddenly goes from being uh, closed to being open so uh, this one is set 
with a threshold of 75 kV, as soon as the voltage goes above 75 kV, it becomes a conductor. And that suddenly all of that current, whether it's lightning current or indeed traction current, can flow direct to Earth. And by flowing direct to Earth, the circuit breakers in the substation then detect it as a fault and they will trip the circuit breaker open and, and switch off the supply. So the idea is that if, if you do ever get that sudden rise of voltage, rather than the air gap at the bridge breaking down, the, all the current flows through this device instead. Mm. So it literally diverts all of that energy away from the bridge. The flashover never happens. So by doing that, suddenly you don't need a 200 kV withstand air gap anymore. You need a 25 kV withstand air gap, which can be significantly smaller. As thick as, uh, rough, as, thick as the paint. One tenth. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, but but it do, what this doesn't deal with, it doesn't deal with the intrusion of objects. So the other okay, thing yeah. that is in the mix of voltage control clearances, as well as the surge diverters, is an insulating paint coating on the mm. bridge. Uh, and also a, uh, an insulating cover on the contact wire and on the bridge arm. Um, so the idea is it's a suite of measures which collectively allow you to reduce the electrical clearances. And this has been trialled. Uh, in fact, this, this, this photograph was of the trial site in Scotland, oh, nice. uh, which was a very successful trial. Mm. Uh, but it's actually now in operation. There's one location in the UK which, where this is in operation at, at the, the uh, joint most famous bridge in Britain at the moment, which is Cardiff Intersection Bridge. Um, obviously, there are a few other bridges like the Fourth Bridge, and the, yeah, don't talk about those. Um, but the, you know, uh, Cardiff Intersection Bridge, just outside Cardiff, has these measures applied, and the electrical clearance um, after tolerances is about 70 or 80 millimeters. So we've gone from, you know, 270 millimeters to 70 millimeters, which it doesn't sound like a lot, but it can be the difference between rebuilding a bridge and not rebuilding yeah. a bridge. And in the Every case of, millimeter counts. Yeah, for anyone who hasn't had the benefit of any of the presentations about Intersection Bridge at Cardiff, um, there's a canal under it that feeds the whole of the, it feeds a dock that happens to then be used by the fire brigade. Uh, so that can't be diverted at all. And there's also, a, and then the, as an intersection bridge, that's two railways uh, intersecting at different levels. Uh, you can't then move the railway above it any higher because you then have to bulldoze Queen Street Station. And also, I think it ends up pushing S&C into Central yeah. Station in the other direction. And, so and it's, also the, it's also the water supply for a steelworks. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's which, it. Just... And you can't switch off a steelworks. It's no. not possible or safe to do so. So, so um, this was an imperative yeah. for this. So yeah. I, I think this whole suite is called... Um, DC AC AC electrification with DC clearances, I think, is yes, sort of what this the, whole suite is called, the, isn't it? That's the, that's the slogan that, that uh, that's being used to kind of, and it's a, it's a good, although you know slogans can be dangerous things sometimes. I think it's very good because it describes in a nutshell what it allows you to do. Yeah. Um, and for people who know what DC clearances are, that is. Uh, yeah. For everyone else, so, they're none the wiser. Static DC clearance of 1500 volt is 100 millimeters, so it is actually it's it's arguably below. It's below DC clearances, yeah, yeah. so yeah, it's it's a it's it's really and this is going to so nowhere else got some more tests to conduct because they Cardiff intersection is one kind of bridge, so we need to understand how it performs at you know masonry bridges and other sorts of bridges. So there's some more there's some they're, they're generalising the testing, but um, we we expect to see these measures being routinely used um, in new electrification schemes. And indeed, um, these measures are already being built into the planning work on, on future electrification schemes, yeah. uh, which is really good. So we're already miles late and it's 20 to yeah. 8. And, and yeah. I don't know to what extent and, 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 you can set up the overrun. As well. Yeah, I was going to say there's more to talk about. Keep going. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So um, 
that that what what Neuralla are doing at the moment is really looking across the whole their whole portfolio and saying, you know, where where are there because we electrification really hasn't refreshed itself in terms of in terms of its rules and its ways of working for quite a while. A lot of the rules that we use were really laid down just after the war, around the time of the modernization plan and and, and have been in place ever since. And those rules deliver you a safe, reliable electrification system, but they, they may not represent the threshold of where performance or safety begins to break down. The, the actual threshold may be some way beyond where those rules put us. Um, so there's quite a lot of work going on, and there's there's a one specific piece of work that 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 um, that, that we're involved with and that I'm involved with, uh, which is to measure um, uplift. So uplift is simply when when a train goes through along the overhead line, it pushes on the wire, it has an upward pressure, and and that lifts the wire. And when you get to an overbridge, the wire lifts, and we have things called bridge arms to to limit the amount of lift. But you don't want zero uplift because it's dynamically that's very bad so we always want we always have to allow for the wire to rise as the train goes through and obviously that means the live parts get closer to the bridge so when we build up our minimum bridge height we have to allow for that uplift um, that would movement of the wire um, but crucially up to now we've been using a single value of uplift regardless of speed regardless of the OLE system we're using regardless of the pantograph or other variables but we know anecdotally we know that these uh, that these variables have an impact on uplift, but mm. we don't know how much. We don't know what the relationships between speed and uplift are. We don't know the relationship between wire tension and uplift. We don't know the relationship between the type of pantograph and the uplift, and, and there's other factors as well. So what what uh, we're doing, uh, we're collaborating with Network Rail, and we are um, going out and using a, a really, really clever, exciting digital technique to measure uplift at multiple locations around the UK. Um, so we are going to be measuring at 10, 10 locations around the UK. We selected those very carefully so that we get lots of different parameters and variables mm. and speeds and types of OLE um, to actually measure the uplift and see what it actually is in reality. Uh, and we're using a, a technique that we basically use um, fairly. They're not ordinary video cameras, but they're not super high specialist video cameras either they're um they mount on ordinary survey tripods we set them up in the cess and we we simply shoot video of the bridge arms and of the wire either side of the bridge as trains go through um what we then do the clever part is we then take that video and we then run it through um special correlation algorithms and we are actually able to directly measure uplift to we think at the moment around about three millimeter accuracy. We're still we're still getting into that because it's the first time we've used this technique to measure uplift, mm. um, but certainly to a level of accuracy that's better than anybody's been able to do before. And this the the the, the uh, image on the right there was was the trial that we did, and we you know we we put this together very quickly. This is just some video that I shot, not even with this in mind. I've shot this a year ago when we didn't even think that this technique was possible. Um, uh, but I gave it I gave it to our digital image correlation team and I just said, right, OK, you, you're telling me you can do this? <laughs> Prove it. Demonstrate yeah, it to me. You know, I'm not I don't I don't want to go ahead and tell Network Rail we can do this work unless 
you can show me because you know it's otherwise it's very risky uh and and the trace at the top and th- these are guys who don't know anything about overhead line they're not railway engineers they don't know how overhead line behaves so i didn't tell them anything i didn't tell them what the uplift should be uh what, what a sensible trace would look like and but the trace on the top is extremely credible um it shows mm. the first pantograph coming through and you can see the displacement up to goes up to about 43 millimeters uh, and it's a two pantograph train so you can then see the second pantograph coming through around about the 10 yeah, second yeah. mark um so yeah that really gave us the confidence to say right we can do this um you know if we can do this with an ordinary slr bit of video that frankly wasn't shot off a bridge it was itself vibrating as the train went through um so yeah so we've got teams out on site right now um and they'll be out on site over the next three four months visiting a variety of sites around the uk gathering lots of data and then the really interesting part is then you know analyzing that and saying what are the actual relationships and therefore what what should designers be using uh, when they design OLE through bridges yeah. uh, and we're hopeful certainly certainly at slower speeds but possibly at higher if we have higher tensions as well we might be able to reduce the uplift which might you know in turn might for instance mean well why don't we use a higher tension OLE wire run through the bridge um, in order to reduce the uplift for instance um, it gives us it allows us to do clever things in the design um, to to nibble away at those millimeters as i say you know 20 millimeters 30 millimeters can be the difference between a rebuild and no rebuild Absolutely, yeah it's and it's there's not enough sciencey bits going into engineering um and, and so that for me the more the merrier the more that yeah. we actually do some sciencey bit and then inc- reincorporate that into engineering the better because yeah. it, it's certainly in quite a few things definitely related to permanent way design um, we've been relying on rules that haven't changed for a very, very long time, and we haven't explored the science behind those rules. Mm-hmm. And actually, for all sorts of reasons, those rules might be uh, not, not perhaps wrong, but uh, not not necessarily as applicable as we think, shall we say? So yeah, yeah it's good to re-explore these things. And there's a there's there's I mean, this, that's one piece of work we're involved with. There is another piece of work we're going to be involved with, which I can't talk about because we're not uh, we're not in contract yet but um it's it's Neworel has got a whole portfolio of these uh of these uh work streams going on some of which we're involved with some of which we aren't um another one one which we're not involved with but we are um keeping a close eye on because it's really exciting and, and it looks again looks like it's going to be positive is um insulated horns on the pantograph if you look at the the image there um the the extremities of the pantograph are called the horns uh, and they are there to manage manage the wire when it goes where it shouldn't go broadly speaking they're there to uh, reduce the risk of the wire getting underneath the pantograph uh, which is a, a very very bad thing when that happens and at the moment all the all of the pantographs in the uk uh, have metal horns they're metal they're live so they tr- they have to be treated as a live part which means when we're looking at things like public safety at stations that's the bit of the live equipment that gets closest to passengers um so proving demonstrating that you can safely electrify a station can be a really challenging thing mm. to do um, if we could convert those horns to being an in, from an, in an insulating material they're no longer live and at that point your live envelope gets smaller uh, that, and that therefore the hazardous equipment moves further away from the from the public so again network rail uh, and rssb have, have been doing some work on that um they are. There will be. They will be entering trials soon. So um, there will be um, uh, a couple of trains running around on the network with these horns. Um, they, they're a straight retrofit, so they're very easy 
to fit to the existing pantographs and and you know if that if those trials and you know trials are trials they may or may not be successful mm. but if they are um that again again if you're looking at arch structures often the pantograph horn is the thing that gets closest to the bridge and therefore it's actually that that drives your electrical clearance and that's when you get into discussing track lowers and track slews to move the pan horns away from the bridge so and again, it, it, this, this every, you know, this is really, it's one of those things where every little helps. You know, if each of these initiatives could contribute 30, 40 millimeters, then collectively they begin to make a really big difference to those, those, you know, those root clearance costs can typically be one third of the entire electrification cost. Um, so, you know, if we can reduce root clearance costs, that's a huge win. It's an interesting one, isn't it? Because for me, I get frustrated. I get a little bit frustrated. These efforts are all good, and the science certainly is. But I get this is where the lack of joined-up thinking becomes a problem because um, fighting a huge like for a business case for electrification, it's really important to fight for this stuff. But when you then look at the bigger picture and think that we ought to be striving for W twelve clearance everywhere where there are elect there is electrification, so that the freight can run. Uh, yeah, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because it, it, this this helps undermine that, which is good for electrification's case, but bad for the overall railway system, yeah. uh, arguably. So uh, yeah, so it's an, yeah, so there's some interesting. Uh, it's this is this is the impact that you have on a railway system overall of of having certain cost pressures being being king rather mm -hmm. than the bigger picture. But anyway, Gary, you don't have to talk about that. It's fine. We have had some interesting points being made. Um, so David Shepard ask, was asking about, uh, has there been any evolution in pantograph or OLE design to reduce damage to OLE from trains? Um, well, to an extent, you've covered that a bit there, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the pan, pan, so, um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm by no means a pantograph expert, and I don't represent pantograph manufacturers, but um, it's obviously a crucial interface that, um, we, that we need to understand. And I think um, to their credit, the pantograph manufacturers have done a lot of work mm. in recent years. Um, you know, the, the, if you look at the the HSA pantograph, for instance, which was kind of the, the everyone everyone calls the high speed pantograph. Um, it's a good pantograph design, but it has been um, completely eclipsed by the 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 more recent pantograph designs, the HSP and the HSX, um, which are far more compliant, uh, have far lower unsprung mass. Uh, and, and you know, for instance, I mean, some of you will be aware that the work we did at Steventon um, and, and managed to demonstrate that what what were um, a, a set of gradients that the rules told us should not work, uh, would, we did work and were perfectly safe and reliable to run at 110 miles an hour. I think a lot of that was to do with the design of the pantograph and the design of the overhead line. So you had high tension overhead line designed for 140 miles an hour. Uh, interacting with a very modern, low unsprung mass pantograph. And I, I think, you know, that that's a lot of the reason why we were able to get Stevenson to work. Um, running running two HSA pantographs through that bridge at 110 miles an hour is probably not something I would have necessarily wanted to, wanted to uh, be around. I don't think it, we would have seen such favorable results there from, from that. Uh, yeah, I, I can understand your, your euphemism there. Right, okay, we're gonna, we're, we've only got, I mean, Gary, I don't know how long you can overrun uh, here. I'm, I'm okay, um, I'll, I'll right. probably be chucked out of the office around about half past eight or so. so uh, hopefully uh, we I'm, don't I'm, go that I'm long. A lot of people here are banging the table hoping it goes on and on. We've had loads of questions, <laughs> of lots of people enjoying. We've got 125 people watching live, uh, so... Um, which is quite a large lecture room it's worth of people. Hello to all of the people out there. Thanks for joining. Um, uh, one of, as an interesting aside, uh, we, Chris Grayling is uh, supporting me on Patreon now. So thanks, Chris. 
welcome. Uh, so this is probably a really good rail night for you to be watching. Uh, thanks to whoever named themselves Chris Grayling and my patron, that did cheer me up. Anyway, right, we're going to go down here. We're going to talk about Project Fizzy Knitting. Uh, Project Fizzy Knitting. So yeah, tell us I about got Project a question actually knitting. for you. Did you right, did you coin Fizzy Knitting? I, I think I, did I think a, it might be yours. I did a Twitter search to see who had come up with Fizzy Knitting. It has been used sort of loosely by other people. Oh, okay. But I used fizzy knitting in one of my uh, Railways Unscienced images, and I think it made you angry, and it may well have stuck. <laughs> well, you know, I've gone through the seven stages of grief now, and I've gone from anger to acceptance, and, and, even, and now I've stolen it. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, what, yeah, what is Project Fizzy Knitting? Um, like many people, I, I, you know, lockdown's been... A difficult time i mean i know that lots and lots of people have had it far far worse than than i have uh, you know I'm, i i have the privilege of, of of owning my own home and and you know having a garden and having a space which you see here that that i can just commandeer during the day so i'm not uh, i'm not downplaying other people's real problems but from a mental health perspective lockdown yeah you know, was as bad, you know, uh, was, was not great for me in, in the same way it hasn't been for a lot of people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, so, same, um, yeah. as I always do when I'm not, when I'm not particularly happy, I find something to do. I find a project. Um, it, it's quite strange actually, when you look at all of my projects, you can pretty much link them to all of, uh, to all of the downtimes in, in my life or all of the times when I've been a bit, ooh, uh, for, for instance, the Railways Archive just happened to coincide with uh, with um, with uh, Claire falling pregnant with uh, with my daughter. Um, uh, in, imminent fatherhood is is uh, something that is uh, you need to be distracted from. It's brilliant, but before you do it, you you know you don't know. So so every time I you know need a need a mental pickup, I'm always looking for something to distract. Um, so one of the things that I've always I've always loved maps. As a kid, I used to. I remember sitting and reading, you know, I had an atlas of the UK and a world atlas. And I used to read them like other people read fiction. You know, I used to just pour over them. So it's always frustrated me a little bit that we didn't have a, a really good electrification map of the UK. Mm. Um, we have, you know, we obviously people will be aware of the paper maps that are available there. I've got a couple of here. They've got the OPC atlas and track maps and, and all those good things. But none of them really give you a really good detailed view of what's electrified and what isn't. And obviously with the the decarbonisation uh, debate now, now really well underway, it felt like a, a good time to create that map and, and, um, and make it available to people so that, you know, we could in, inform the debate a little bit and actually see graphically what how much of the network isn't electrified so that was the kind of thing that i had in my head how could you know how could we do that um what i didn't want to do though was draw a map right i mean anybody yeah. who's done any cartography knows you know this this needed to be a quick and dirty project rather than something that would occupy years of my life i already have other projects that have occupied years of my life and the last thing i needed was another one so so it's how do we create a map without actually having to create a map? Well, luckily, we have this wonderful asset um, called the OpenStreetMap, um, which people may or may not be aware of, but it's a it's an open source map. It's a map. It's a community created map. It's it's like Wikipedia for mapping, um, and it, it, I mean it's quite an extraordinary project, really. And I've I previously have dabbled with it a few years ago. I mapped our village where I live and I map my old neighborhood where I grew up and 
you know you can just you can ride a bike around your neighborhood with a gps and and record a load of traces and then turn it into and then con- turn that into a bit of mapping um uh, so the open street map exists already and it's and it's it a map of the world yeah, uh, I, brought, I thought I'd bring it up. Yeah, and, and so there it is. It There's is. the whole thing, you know. And this isn't Google Maps, this isn't it? A proprietary mapping system. This is open source, free to reuse, free to repurpose. Um, and so, you know, I started thinking. I wonder if, I wonder if the what's the rail mapping like within OpenStreetMap? And it, and I'm going to be slightly cautious here because it's not perfect. And I, mm. certainly, as we've done this project, we've discovered. Um, where its imperfections lie, it's not perfect. And when this, when our, when our map eventually goes public, there'll be some very stiff health warnings on it. There'll be some, you know, there'll be some do not use, you know, do not use this map for safety critical work. Do not trust this map. Do not assume it's 100% correct because, because it isn't, and it never can be because it's user editable. Anybody can create. Its strength is greatest strength is also its greatest weakness. It's yep. anybody can edit it. You can literally um, register with an OpenStreetMap account, and you can be editing this map within about 20 minutes. It's very very easy. It's got a very low, uh, very shallow learning curve to to edit the map, and that's again that's brilliant, but also you know potentially quite um, quite dangerous. So. Um, we're being quite careful about exactly what you know what uh, level of detail we provide uh, and what and what and how we what we tell people about how to use this map but the idea is to leverage the 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 railway data that's already there you know the routes are mapped the tracks are mapped um some of the you know things like depots and sidings tend to be a bit hit and miss but um it's you know it's generally pretty good data um so the idea was to leverage that to clean up the electrification uh, tagging, the, the electrification metadata within within the OpenStreetMap database, and then to create a map which pulls that electrification view forward and fades the other stuff into the background. Um, so that's what we've done. And, and indeed, and, and here is what it looks like in full screen mode with the fade the the fade to black yeah. bit which you said is like yeah. a work in progress actually yeah. but I, I quite like it because it shows it shows the fizzy bits very very nicely yeah um there it is so we've, we've got it up exclusively for rail matter this is so, so this is the map this is a world exclusive let's zoom uh, in on let's zoom we're in not, on a we're bit not of... quite ready and gareth's got the url and he's sworn blind he won't give it to anybody else no, no one gets this don't worry it's uh it's still we still, at the moment, the site's a prototype. It's not a, it's not a nice, shiny, polished website. Um, there's still some issues with um, symbology and, and, and line styles, and we've got a few. I'm still getting my head around some of the voltages on the third rail network, for instance. So uh, there's a few things to do, but we're not, we're not far away now. Um, we're we're pr- pretty happy with the electrification data that's that's in OpenStreetMap. We've even had to negotiate with. O- with OpenStreetMap to change some of their tagging to um, oh, wow. so uh, for instance they didn't have any way they didn't have an agreed way of tagging dual voltage areas uh, and they didn't have a they didn't have anything for fourth rail uh, in ah, fact when we when, yeah, we, okay. when we when we discussed it with the, the community because it's an open source community and you know what open source communities can be like yeah. um, they they can be quite um, they can be quite uh, robust. They they like they've been doing this for years, and who the hell are you to come along and start trying to mess up our tagging structure? But to be fair, 
we went through their process there's a voting process you have to put a proposal forward and then it gets voted on uh, and we got the we got the uh, the changes to tagging structure agreed so now we've got a tag for fourth rail we've got an agreed way of dealing with dual voltage areas which means that we can then color code those areas uh, as we want to so broadly speaking on this map ac electrification the 25 kv is in red um, other other overhead line is in various shades of, of red orange uh, the third rail network is in various shades of green depending on voltage and the fourth rail network is in various shades of blue depending on voltage and then the the dual voltage areas are alarming shades of pink and purple <laughs> yes kind of that's uh it, it takes a lot it's quite it's easy to kind of say i oh, just color code it differently but um just agreeing color coding is quite it's difficult to be sort of systematic about what those colors mean uh, but i mm. think we've come to a good conclusion now uh, and, and we've got a good color coding structure and also you can see the great thing about open street map is it's not just the existing railways the, the railways under construction are already in there so uh, east west rail has got a trace uh, cross rail's got a trace it's all in there and even high speed two that you can see that the dash line there is already and that's that's not we haven't put it in there it's already in there also i see westmanland's metro has even got yep so somebody is incorrectly put in named metro system there potential extension of west midland metro so this isn't uh, you know this is a a uh, scheme that, that may go ahead in the future so uh, it's i think in terms of giving an overall the more i we've the more we've done this the more i've realized that this map there's nothing else like this at the moment for the UK. There's a project called Open Rail Map, which is doing something similar for the whole of Europe. Um, but it's it's not looking at electrification. It doesn't surface the electrification data specifically. Um, so yeah, it's uh, you know the more the more we've worked on it, the more we've thought well, this is quite useful uh, as an overview. But only as an overview. It's not. There are going to be errors if you you know if you I mean, what's that? Leeds is that? That's uh, Neville Hill. Yeah. That's Neville Hill. Yeah. Yep. So um, you know, uh, is every, every every siding exactly correctly shown there? Is it millimeter accurate? Absolutely not. And you should not be using this data for that. <laughs> yeah. And that's yeah. why, for instance, we've limited the zoom level. We've deliberately. Ah, you know, yeah, that's good as point. As far as you can zoom in, yeah. we're not letting you go all the way in. But I'd be getting very um, angry if this was the real, the true track alignment through here. Oh yeah, you know, no, the, the alignments are shocking. Yeah. I mean, obviously, on running lines, what people are generally doing is they're getting on a train, or they were getting on a train, uh, GPS and trace, recording yeah. the GPS trace. But um, you can't do that in a siding. Um, so yeah, some of the some of the siding layouts that I've got to uh, have been a, an unholy mess, and we've done a little bit of work to to get box them into approximate shape but they're never going to be accurate and that's not the purpose of this map it's to give you it's to allow people who are interested in the electrification agenda to see what is wired what isn't wired and help them discuss and debate what should be wired uh, and then you know that sort of thing yeah it's brilliant it's absolutely fantastic um uh, yeah. it will, i should add it will show um, if you were to switch back away from this full screen mode, you'll also you'll see all the non-electrified lines in black. Um, so ah, yeah, no, I don't want to do that. So Close you have got quick. you have got the whole. Oh, was that the URL? Right, it might have been. That's fine. No we'll one blur, go on that. We'll blur that before it goes on YouTube. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so yeah, so um, it, we we do also show the non-electrified. You can see the whole picture. Uh, and what it really, yeah, yeah. if you zoom out to the national level, it really just shows you. Oh, it's uh, gone. I've, yeah, I've, I've got rid of that now because I'll have to uh, yeah. URL it. But anyway, you, you, yeah, I think people had a good overview of what of what that will eventually look like. And, and actually, if we go back to the get the slides up. So this was my 
map showing, look, there's a map, but nothing on it, really, because there's not a good electrification yeah. map. You, you're going to kind of show some of these stats, I think, on the website. Yeah, right? we're going to put alongside that on the website just to kind of just to give a numerical view of what the what the what the map shows you graphically is just to present a snapshot of the current state of play. Uh, and this is and these are my numbers. They aren't official numbers, but I have cross checked them against the network rail overall numbers. So they're 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 a good match for the official statistics. Um, uh, and and it really shows the state of play, and it shows how much there is to do uh, at the moment. You know, uh, and this is measured by single. There's two ways of measuring electrification. There's route kilometres and single track kilometres. So route kilometres is, you know, if, for, if Swindon to Reading is 30 miles, that's 30 route miles or 30 times 1.6 route kilometres. But it's a four-track railway, uh, so therefore it's 30 times four. STKs. Uh, that's the way that that's the way that you do the maths. Um, I, I we always use STKs because it's a more accurate picture of how much work is involved. Yes. Uh, clearly, electrifying a four-track railway is significantly more work than electrifying a two-track railway. Um, I like the STKs because so you can compare. It's easier to compare general infrastructure project costs as well. So I, I, I prefer STKs. Yeah. It's our. I mean, signalling have their kind of single single unit of signaling don't they it's, it's yeah. our unit of cost really uh, that, that we use um, so as you can see more than half the more than less than half the network is currently electrified and measured by stk i mean if you measure it by train miles it's you know most most train miles are electric train miles uh, but if you look at network uh, it's less than 50 percent yeah uh, yeah, right, okay. Conscious of it being five past eight. Thanks, everyone, for sticking with us. Uh, and apologies for people who are on the audio and can't see that. This is a pie chart showing uh, the difference between, you know, the, the different percentages between, so yeah, non-electrified, 53.5% of the network, um, and then the rest is, 32% of the overall is, um, yep. is standard OLE, and then the rest is split between third and fourth rail. Um, the next bit is just the key, really, to your... So I think you were t describing that earlier. We don't need to really yeah, dwell yeah. on it. That's just we, sp the key. we spent quite a lot of time getting this right, really, and getting the symbology right so that there would be some... So, so that the, the colour carries meaning and also that the dashes carry meaning. So, uh, And as you can see, there's a couple of TBCs there because I'm still trying to work out some of the, the details on the voltages on the third rail. Uh, <laughs> and and when, I, when I understand that fully, then we'll be able to uh, decide what shade of green to use. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> So we've got um, uh, we've got some questions. Uh, well, we've got we've got one question which I think maybe you're going to maybe cover, or at least there'll be a useful picture for it briefly. So I'm going to hold back from David. Um, anyway, lots of good chat. Thanks everyone for joining and chatting. It always always helps. Uh, oh yeah, the OLE book. For those who don't know, Gary, oh, wait a minute. I can do this. I can do a Blue Peter moment with this. Look at this thing. Hooray. Let me go side by side so it's bigger. It's the OLE book. Hashtag OLE book with, um, yeah, by, by Gary. It's very good. You can literally now go and download this for free. Yep. And in fact, Gary and I would both recommend you to do that. You don't have to pay Absolutely. for a hard copy. There is a free PDF one. It just so happens to be that a lot of people really wanted a hard copy more than you'd planned or a surprising yeah. a surprisingly f number foolish foolish number of people who, who were willing to part with their hard-earned money now that was i mean that was an amazing thing that happened last year um really kind of took me by surprise really so um yeah and so where are we with that so my original plan um lots of people had plans this year didn't they um 
uh, which have come to nothing. My original plan was to do a uh, was to do another print run uh, in the spring, just gone in March, <laughs> in March and April. Um, but clearly, uh, the world changed in March and April, and uh, at that point, there was so much uncertainty. Um, you know, uncertainty in my personal life, uncertainty at work, um, uncertainty, lots of people not knowing, you know, even whether they had a job the next month. So um, we decided that we weren't going to go ahead with with the the print run uh, in March, April. Since then, I've kind of been, you know, maybe once a month or so saying, okay, how do we how do we feel about things now? The sense I get at the moment, it's very difficult because, you know, as anybody involved in marketing will tell you, it's very difficult to understand what your what your what your customers and your audience really wants. Um, you can conduct polls and things, but most people don't respond to polls. The sense I get at the moment is there's some people who have who have um, who have been largely economically at least largely unaffected um, by by COVID-19. I'm one of those people. I'm very lucky in that respect. But I'm I'm very conscious that there are you know at least as many people who have been significantly impacted people have been people in our industry have been put on furlough um you know, people even who, who have lost their jobs um so it at the moment it just didn't fit it didn't it still doesn't feel right to do a print run because there'll be people out there who would want a book and but wouldn't want to buy one now and would feel you know and i don't want to i i last thing i want to do is add to anybody's um anybody's uh, mental health problems this year so uh, in terms of you know should i buy should i not buy can i afford it all of that stuff so i think for the moment what we're going to do is we're not going to do a print run this year and i think the reality is what we're probably going to just do is focus on so you've got the fifth edition the fifth edition is is the one you're holding up that's the one that's available on the website there is a sixth edition it's it's a draft uh it's a work in progress um uh, it's. I was doing quite well with it, and then lockdown, lockdown, pretty much ruined my ability to do any long-term thinking and planning for a while. So I just stopped. Like lots of people, I just stopped what I was doing and focused on, focused on the here and now, focused on the day job really. Um, so I think as we get into the autumn and I get the fizzy knitting thing out of the way, um, we I will get back on to doing. You know, I've already I've already drafted quite a few new sections upgraded quite a few sections but i've still got probably 50 percent of the way through the the drafting process for the sixth edition um so in terms of timeline my aim would be probably to issue sixth edition online back end of next year so towards the end of 2021 uh, and then you know either go for a print edition just before you know shortly before christmas 21 or, or in spring 22 I don't think there's I don't I wouldn't feel right trying to trying to flog the fifth edition next spring Well, maybe hopefully fingers crossed things have improved mm. when I know that the sixth edition is just around the corner that wouldn't that wouldn't feel right so so yeah so for those of you who are desperate for a print fifth edition I apologize uh, and for those of you who are happy to wait then uh, then uh, uh, some fresh content is on its way it's something you should be very proud of Gary You've got several projects that you created that you should be very proud of. I think the Railways Archive is an absolutely sensational bit of kit. Uh, A lot of us use it. It's invaluable. But um, the OLE book is terrific. I refer to it quite regularly. And in fact, I'm giving a seminar about electrification. Don't laugh. It's a strategic level, so it's fine. I don't have to know anything really about electrification. 
Um, but I will be. I will have this thing down underneath me just in case the Colombians ask me any tricky yeah, questions. Sure. Um, I, so yeah, so it's fantastic. Uh, I'd recommend I, everyone to download I, I, it. One th- really important thing that I don't that I don't say enough actually is, is that, that, that it wasn't a sole effort. Uh, there's, I could not have written that book without. First of all, the knowledge that I've gained from from other people who are better at electrification than me. So, so many people. Are, you know, I'm constantly asking other people questions, and then, and then rewording what they tell me. It, you know, putting that in my own words. But also the number of people who are, you know, who check individual sections for me, particularly for the sixth edition. I'm 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 in areas where I am wildly incompetent. So I've written a section on how railway traction works. I've written a section on how electric locomotives work. Yeah, exactly. And uh, brave. All right, and that, we've got. I can do. Let's let's go side by side because. Yeah, yeah. That's been a learning journey for me. Look at this. Yeah. Um, so, that's a couple of the diagrams that are going to be in the sixth edition. Um, ne- none of neither of these have been checked, by the way. So I will reserve the right to, <laughs> yes. to change these. Changing. These are pre. These are pre IDC uh, in railway yeah. parlance. Um, but um, you know, just just understanding how electric trains work, and you know, particularly how modern traction works, is not something I'm remotely experienced in. I sit on the other side of that interface. Um, but it's surprising how few people in my job don't understand how railway traction works. Um, so I, I felt for the sixth edition, it was really important to reach across that divide. So mm. yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, one of one of my tasks as we go into autumn is find is to find somebody who has got the relevant experience and competence who can check what I've written. Um, and I've got a few ideas about that. I'm, 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 I'm very lucky in being quite well connected these days. So, uh, yeah, luckily not- I, I have people within the, within the rolling stock community who, who, who are experts on this, who will no doubt, uh, tear my words to pieces and, and make them work. So, uh, so yeah, I'm moving into areas outside my competence. Um, but you know that hopefully to to bring them inside, my, and it, it helps me to learn as well because I I have a I have a very low boredom threshold. If I'm not learning something, you know, then I I get bored, and once I get bored, I'm dangerous. Um, <laughs> uh, you you don't you don't want me being bored because I switch off. So uh, oh, yeah, this yeah, keeps yeah. me this keeps me sharp. You know, it's, we're, it's we're, always good. Both of us are guilty of having too many of, of spinning far too many plates oh, God, at a yes, given moment. Yeah. It's not um yeah. it's not good. But also it's as you say it's because. It's because these things keep us entertained, and it feels like you're doing something. Um, yeah. Anyway, right? Yeah, that's no, that's great. Thanks for that update. Oh yeah, which so these these are quite. Mm. Sorry for everyone on YouTube, because even on YouTube, these are quite fine images. So we're going to shout at Gary for that. Yeah, they don't so translate brilliantly, do they? Um, but tell us about this. So why, why are you? Yeah, I got. I thought you. I thought this would excite you because it's track. And it is it's track. It's some S and C, some squished S and C. Well, that yeah. yeah. So I've been trying to understand a bit, and again, this is a this is learning for me. Over at Line Engineers, generally, we 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 um. We get away in so in the UK anyway. We tend to get away with not having to understand S and C geometry because we we adhere to a fairly simple play school set of rules about how to lay out the wiring geometry at turnouts. And I just a couple of years ago I thought, well, this isn't good enough. We should. And then I started reading another book, uh, an equal, a, a very good but quite challenging book, the 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 Siemens over a line book, uh, which explains the European yeah. way of doing turnouts. And they they're not. They're not. They don't afraid. They're not. Pus- they don't pussyfoot around like us in the UK. They get stuck in <laughs> to turnout geometry. Um, so I wrote. I, I, I expanded the turnout section chiefly to try and understand how the hell it is that they do it and, and what it is that they do. So, uh, so yeah, I got like a couple, last year. I got very bogged down in in stretched 
stretch test and see diagrams like this and try to understand how it all works. I d I'm still not sure I entirely understand how it works, but uh, I've had a go anyway. You can judge for yourselves when you read the sixth edition. Which um, which leads to David's uh, David's question, David Shepard's question, which is about the complete. How tricky is it to wire up S and C? So S and C switches and crossings where tracks intersect. How tricky is it? Is it really tricky, or is it? What what we do is, I mean, this is a really wonderful diagram because we we do OLE engineers. We're guilty of this all the time. If you open any of the system manuals, so you know all all of our OLE systems now come with a manual. Um, uh, and, and they tell you how to. They, they give you the rules, the set out rules. You know, they tell you how to, how to how to wire things, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. And whenever you get to the turnout geometry section, there's always a diagram like this that shows you how to wire a crossover. And it's always a crossover with a standard six foot tangent track, no bridges or stations or level crossings or buildings or anything else and no constraints are completely unconstrained and, and to, to wire a crossover that's unconstrained is is very easy you just follow the rules broadly um, and the rules are fairly straightforward as well but of course the real railway is not like that um, and it, it it's it is difficult with the OLE manuals because they describe a railway that doesn't exist very often it does exist sometimes you know on open route sections but a lot of the time the skill that that the people that i work with you know the people in atkins and in other design houses the, the skill that they add uh, you might think well they're just they're just applying the rules and rolling out the giant meccano set no there's a lot more to it than that because they have to take all of these rules and then apply them to a scenario where they can't meet all the rules you often can't meet all of the well, rules I'd, I'd the there are almost no situations where you can apply the rules without yeah. needing to apply judgment to it yeah that's why we get paid the the moderately okay bucks because yeah. the fact is that you can't just computer yeah, yeah. apply the standards. So a really work. good example of this is um, a location near me, Huntsmill Road, just outside Swindon, um, where that where that control structure is on the turnout opening uh, uh, is under a bridge, and there's no room to get a structure. So you've got to, you've got to control exactly that there. You've got to control the wiring at that point, but there's a bridge there. So what are you going to do? You're going to hang the control structure off the bridge. Are you going to demolish the bridge? Are you going to, you know, what, what are you going to do? Um, uh, and those are the situations. Those are where uh, my colleagues, that, that's where they earn their money. That's where they earn their money. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, that's the fun stuff. That's the stuff mm -hmm. that keeps us entertained, Gary, isn't it? It's the, yeah. It's and we, the, you know, the, we'll come to you and go, move, we'll come to you and say, move that crossover. Just move it. Yeah, and, because, then, I'll, and then I'll flip because these. Because I can't. And then you'll you'll start reeling off all of the rules and constraints that you've got to apply in your discipline, which means that you can move it. And then the civil engineer will chip in and say, "Well, I can't possibly rebuild the bridge because there's a row of houses next to it." So, and then know, the signalers will come along and say, "Yeah, but you're that distance from that other junction, and you're the, and our overlap, and we're double blocking, or there's some uh, and yep. we, the overlaps mean you have to move the crossover by another 32 meters in the down that, direction." And then that's you, why your hair catches That's why fire. railway engineers always say the pain is at the interfaces. Yeah. Designing within your discipline is, is, e is the easy bit of the job. The hard bit of the job is delivering a design that works with all the other railway systems. Um, yeah, I, that's, and we, we've, I think that broadly, what time is it? It's 2018. We're not, it's not the, this isn't the most catastrophically uh, long-running <laughs> uh, rail matter. It was always going to be a long one. Um, so send any questions that I've missed, anything you want to ask, Gary, given, given the subject matter we've covered, go for it. Um, 
uh, people are asking me confusing questions like, can you very quickly explain what reduced phantom overlap is? No, nope, I cannot. A what? A reduced phantom overlap. I think it might be a fiction. It might be fiction. Don't worry about it. Roman Adocrat's trolling us. That's fine. Um, people are saying this is why Crossrail isn't open yet, referring to the interfaces. Yes, that's correct. Uh, although lots of signaling interfaces with themselves in, in lots of cases. Let's not worry too much about that. Uh, we, you were, we were asked a question earlier about how tricky is it to wire up in N-Gage. Uh, that's, that's one for you, Gary. <laughs> well, uh, I don't... I. It's funny because I do have a little bit of N-Gage uh, stuff. Um, really? That I occasionally get out and play with. Um, uh, and my eyes, I'm 49 and my eyesight is absolutely shocking. I'm, I'm now reduced to wearing these when I want to, even if I want to read something. So um, for me personally, absolutely no chance. <laughs> yeah. um, for the sort of bit at the other end of scale, you can go on YouTube and see people building RC cars in 150th scale. So uh, anything's possible, but I, I wouldn't. I, I see people do it in double O gauge and, and that, you know, some people achieve mind blowing results. Uh, I don't know how they do it. I don't know how they had the patience. I went to I went to the Great Central to look at a model railway thing uh, last year, and um, and there was some decent oily there. I was I was judging them on the lack of stagger, uh, where the oily goes zigzagging from one side to the other. That was you disappointing. Can't, you can't do that. It's not. It's not. <laughs> I've done the same. I've gone to the, you know, I went to a model railway exhibition two three years ago in our village, and there was an incredible Swiss layout, and it was all it was like a layer cake. It was tiered oh, yeah, up through yeah, the mountains. Yeah. And it was beautiful. It was a work of art. And this chap, retired chap, had, you know, it was it was his life's work. It was brilliant. And you know, was the overhead line perfect on it? Of course it wasn't. Um, did you drag him over but, it? Of course and, and you did. I did no, no, absolutely no, no. not. I wouldn't have dreamt <laughs> of doing it because this guy was was an artist, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. So no, it's you know the the mere act of getting overhead line onto a model railway and making and on an exhibition layout as well yeah yeah, uh, yeah. which get pretty rough and tumble amazing, yeah. amazing thing to do not my favorite bit of a very small bit of engage uh, electrification which is actually a little bit tasha if you're watching or anyone or charlotte or anyone from the museum um you want you, you there's a bridge arm that's fallen off the stretch of channel tunnel railing from the 1970s uh, you need to go in and fix it. But actually, it's a really immaculate, with a nice French continental train. This is from the old 1970s channel. Uh, the the cleverest ones, actually, that's are the ones nice. who you sometimes see it. They put the structures in, but not the wires. Yeah, that's clever. And, I if, think it, that's... and if it's done right, if it's done, if it's not done right, it, it, it looks obvious. But I've seen people do it, and you do a double take because you don't see it straight away. Mm. And that's just amazing. It's, it's all smoke and it's all sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors. Brilliant. At some point in the distant future, I might attempt it when I try and recreate my bit of 1980s BR whatever uh, on a plank. Anyway, d d I digress horribly. David Shepard's got another question, which is quite an interesting one, which is, uh, which be we, I suppose we can both conje conject about. Uh, what are the failure options for keeping the railway open if the OLE gets damaged? Um, well, the first thing to do... Uh, and I'm like a broken record with this is is not damage it. The first thing yeah, to do yeah. is to is to do the work, do the hard work of making overhead line reliable. Because you know, famously, unlike virtually every other railway system, there is no redundancy available in the contact wire. So you can't have a second contact wire. You can't have a you know an emergency system that swings into action when the contact wire gets broken. Um, so all of and that's why you know we overhead line engineers drive our 
colleagues in other disciplines crazy by you know really focusing on you know i i can't wire it like that it won't be reliable mm. um we all all of our efforts and sometimes you might not it might be an obvious obvious why we're insisting on doing it a certain way it's always ultimately about two things safety and reliability those that those two things are at the absolute core of what we do um because we don't have the luxury of a backup um when it the second thing is when it does go wrong you need you know you need a recovery process that gets things back up and running as quickly as possible um i know we could get i know where this question is kind of trying to drag us into buy modes and all of these sorts of things i think you know before we go there there's there's an we we understand the failure modes of overhead line relatively well um there's probably more work we could do on that um, and I know that's something that, that Network Rail already are doing uh, to improve their understanding of failure modes. But um, it's really focusing on prevention rather than cure. Yeah, definitely. It's interesting you talk about reliability because um, it's the same thing that I try and push as a in my day job. Is is actually okay? We it takes a lot longer for OLE goes catastrophically wrong. If it goes goes wrong often, it goes catastrophically wrong. Mm. Um, but P-Way, it's similar. You know, we try and design for reliability. And a lot of the stuff we do when we're trying to stick with it, trying to keep it within standard compliance uh, is because in, within those brackets, it, it's likely to last longer and not be yes. as much of a problem. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. And there are certain a things... Good, a good example is at the start of, you know, although, although we got many things wrong in CP5, as, as is well documented, um, there are things we got right in CP5 and they tend to get, they tend to go unnoticed because, yep. you know, um, because of the the, 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 the negative stuff is very distracting. Um, at the start of CP5, Network Rail, ident it knew it needed a new OLE system. Uh, and it identified, as part of that early work, identified the famous 93 failure modes. So there were 93 failure modes in the in the LME, in the, in the Mark 3B overhead line system that, that Network Rail identified. And it then looked at every single one of those failure modes and designed virtually all of them out of the the modern system so the the, the system that is is being is being rolled out now is being used on on middle and main line and will be used on future schemes is called uk master series and uk master series is the industry's response to um, a modern OLE system that addresses those failure modes. So as an example, as one example, the, the Mark 3B registration arm, which sits on the contact wire and holds it steady, um, has three components and they're crimped together. And the, 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 the uh, integrity of that arm depends entirely on the quality of the crimping. And the crimping is done by someone in a factory. So, uh, you know, quality control processes in factories can go wrong. Um, so the... The UKMS arms, because there's, there's several different types, but they they all have one thing in common, which is they are a one-piece arm, mm. one-piece extrusion. And there's, you know, there's 93 of those failure modes uh, that that have all been addressed. And actually, um, when you look at the reliability, we've got about three years worth of data now on on uh, on Great Western uh, on the overhead line there, and it is performing very well. It is it is behaving itself. It is not suffering from any any significant reliability issues. And very much so it shows forward, that it yeah. can be done. I'm very much looking forward to comparing that to the East Coast Mainline. Uh, for me, my ultimate aim is to compare East Coast Mainline reliability, uh, CapEx and OpEx accounting for its reliability with GWEP and showing that even with the expensive bits of GWEP, GWEP is cheaper in the long run. 
that's that's my like ultimate aim and it might be a real piece i have to do in like five or six years when we start getting data that i can project into the future from gwep but uh yeah i'd be really, i'm looking forward to doing that because uh from my perspective where i'm coming from where money in reality money isn't an issue human resources and time are the issue i'd rather we build if we're building something closing the railway we should be building it right and not building it cheap um Right, okay, any other questions? I think I'm going to probably wrap us up uh, because of time and Gary and, well, in fact, I've got, uh, very kindly, Dina brought me some uh, some fish fingers and chips that have been sat next to me that I need to eat. Uh, so, uh, anyway, that's, that's dinner. Thanks, Dee. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure, Gary. All, all, all I'm going to do is put us next to yeah, each other and in. then uh, the old classic hashtag, electrify all the things, because uh, that's yep. what we need to be doing big time. Yes, um, and, if, and if you can afford it, do go and buy Noel Dolphin's t-shirts. Yeah, uh, yes. excellent. Going to a good uh, cause. Yes, agreed. Um, and what 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 are my normal sundries? Oh yeah, for everyone who joined on the podcast, uh, do give feedback on how tred- dreadful a, d- a job I do of audio describing the slides. I think I do a reasonably dismal job of it, so I always need to do better. Um, uh, thanks, Heel, for for putting those on onto the various podcasting sites. Next week, next week we have Luke uh, Tube Mapper is going to be joining us. As, as very recently negotiated. That should be good. Um, talking about uh, beauty from mundanity, uh, c- kind of creating beauty from the mundane, which is something right up my street because I love things that are mundane. And then if you can take pictures and make them look good, that's even better. So that should be very interesting. But I'm sure there'll be all sorts of chat going on with that. So that'll be a pleasure. Um, and, oh, and the usual stuff, Patreon. Thanks, Chris Grayling again. Big shout out. Uh, and... Um, yeah, so support me on Patreon. That's where you get to steer what these do and who gets to appear next. Um, and, uh, yeah, it only remains really to say, that's a nice chat, Gary. We haven't had a chat in ages, actually. The point, no, of, these, the point of these is always that they're kind of affording people the chance to sit in on a pub chat because um, a lot of information passes around that way rather than in seminar form. So that's kind of why these exist. It's quite nice, it's quite nice to, um, to have that in lockdown. Yeah, it's been good. Uh, or whatever this is that we're in now. Is it? It's not lockdown. It's sort of half lockdown, uh, right? I don't know we do need is. a name for whatever the hell this is. I don't yeah. think anyone's yet nailed it on Anarchy? what 2020 is. <laughs> uh, yeah, a disaster. Yeah, well, maybe. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, no, uh, it's, it's been great, Gary. It really has been great. And um, uh, probably a million questions that haven't been answered as well. There are loads of questions in the chat steering all over the place. There's a huge amount of detailed chat about tractive effort and traction going on as well. Love the chat. It's just chaos in there. And thanks for everyone who's stuck with us. Still got 110 people watching, which is nice. Um, it only remains for the two of us to, to sort of say cheerio. Uh, yeah. Uh, Gary, don't, don't hang up on me immediately after this, because I always forget to tell people that in the opening, in, the, in my like, pre-railnatter brief, because I say thanks when I put the credits on. Anyway, there's a little insight for everyone. <laughs> cheerio, everyone. Cheerio. Bye-bye.